Well, Happy New Year to all of you. This is the beginning of a new liturgical year, the beginning of Advent. I'm not early on the New Year's. Um, And so at Church of the Cross, we try and center ourselves within the liturgical calendar. And for those of you who aren't familiar, it begins in Advent. It goes then on to uh, a time of Christmas, 12 days of Christmas, then a season of Epiphany, and uh, followed by a season of Lent. And those two seasons, we celebrate Christ's work here on the earth. And we think about, um, we kind of meditate on what he's doing. And then we come to Easter, where it's a season, not just a day. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And then Pentecost, Trinity Sunday, and then a season uh, called Common Time, where we walk in and out, day in, day out, with the Trinity. And the reason we do this, the reason we follow the liturgical calendar, is because it helps us to be centered upon the life and death of Jesus. So we as Christians don't have Jesus in one center or one splinter part of our life, but rather we put him in the center. And so our hope is in the liturgical calendar is that everything we do kind of adjusts ourselves to that part of Christ's life, his death, or his resurrection. And so here we are in the season of Advent. And Advent is often characterized as a season of expectation, as a season of waiting. And and so what we try and do is with our whole body, our whole being, our emotions, our intellect, our body, we put ourselves in this place of expectation and waiting. And we do so in two ways. In the first way, we do it by looking back. We try and reimagine what it must have been like for a first century Jew to be in this context of turmoil and just yearning and waiting for a Messiah, for someone to come and offer them freedom and offer them life again. And so we, we, we go back and we set ourselves, try and reimagine that time of expectation and waiting. Then we also go forward because Christ, Jesus has promised that he will come again. And I think we're all aware of the systemic pain, the, um, the turmoil, the suffering, the injustice that's in our world. We're also aware of it in our relationships, the way we interact with one another, the way we hurt one another. And this world just isn't the way it ought to be. And so we look forward to that day when Christ will come again and things will be made right, justice will prevail, and we will be in right relationship with one another. So it's this looking back and it's this looking forward. And here we are in the middle and we're looking on both sides. And during Advent, we kind of posture ourselves in this place and we seek to look at the scriptures and the story of Jesus. And we say, what can we learn from that first century period, from that time of expectation And we look forward and say, what can we learn from this hope? How can we center ourselves between these two things? So that's what we're going to be trying trying to be doing in Advent. One of the ways we're going to be doing this is with this devotional, which I hope many of you picked up on your way here. But it's just a way for all of us to really get into the season and to engage um, with the Lord in the Bible through that. And we're also going to be doing that through a sermon series that we're calling Songs to the Coming King. And we're going to be um, setting ourselves in three texts, uh, the Magnificat, the Song of Mary, uh, the Song of Zechariah, and the Song of Simeon, and examining Advent and this expectation and waiting and the coming of Jesus in the midst of those things. Now, I know you all are astute Bible scholars, and so you may be wondering, why is it called the Song of God's People, Song of the Coming King, Songs to the Coming King, but we're not working on a song today. Today is the story of the announcement to Mary, from Gabriel to Mary. And the reason for that is that we're actually doing some background today that will actually propel us into the next three songs. And so hopefully 
the information you have today will help us to examine these songs in, uh, with more clarity and more focus. And so we go back for a little bit here. Now, I'm sure you guys are all sick of this, and you might be able to even repeat it back to me, but we are going to, for a second, dive again into the first century. And we have to remember that Jesus was living at a time, and he was born into a culture, Israel, that was under oppression. They were under Roman rule. So they couldn't do everything they wanted to. Most of the people in Galilee, the region where Jesus was born, were making minimum wage and taxed, um, scholars estimate, about 40 to 50%. So this is heavy taxation. They're under political oppression as well. They don't have their own king. They have a puppet king. And, uh, and this, all these things add up to a spiritual oppression as well because the Israelites had this God who was supposed to be ruler over everything, over all, over other nations, over other gods. And yet here is a country that worships a pagan god that is ruling over them. And so they're in this situation, and there's a longing, there's a yearning. You can, I bet you could have cut it with a knife in the air. And we see this because time and time again, revolutionaries raise up and they start a revolution. They're terrorists, basically, against Rome. And they um, embark on various endeavors to try and overthrow Rome and say, and say, the Messiah has come, we will overthrow Rome. And time and time again, Rome puts these revolutionaries down. And so this is the context that we find Mary. Mary, most scholars believe, is about 12 or 13 years old when Gabriel comes to her. So it's a little different than I think many of us have seen in cartoons. The average age for betrothal, which she is betrothed, as the text tells us, is 12 and a half in first century Palestine. So a junior high girl is who the angel Gabriel comes to in our text. And she's from Galilee, so she's a working class girl. She's out in the boonies, if you will. She is working, she probably is in a farming community or um, a masonry or carpentry community. So here is this woman, this 12-year-old girl, 13-year-old girl, and the angel Gabriel comes to her as we read in our text. Now, if you had your choice of angels to come to you, Gabriel would not be at the top of your list. Let me tell you why. Gabriel had this reputation in the Jewish world of being kind of the angel of the apocalypse, and this is mostly due to his um, appearance in the book of Daniel. So he comes in Daniel And he uh, meets Daniel twice, and he gives this really apocalyptic message about the end times, 70 weeks, all these things. And so, when and Mary, being um, an observant Jew, would have gone to synagogue, would have gone to temple, was aware of the story of Daniel. So somehow, when she, we don't know how she's made aware, but she's made aware that this is the angel Gabriel. And I kind of imagine it. You know when you're watching a movie and the strings come in? You don't really know what's going to happen, but something's going to happen? Uh, Monica and I saw Harry Potter last Sunday, and I saw the first Harry Potter, and then I saw this one, and I didn't read any of the books, so I was pretty clueless throughout the whole movie, but I knew something was going to happen when the strings would just rise up. I I didn't know what was happening in the story, but something climactic was going to happen, and so I imagine this 12, 13-year-old girl um, from the farm regions, this angel appears to her, and she finds out that it's Gabriel. The strings would just swell up in this moment. And what Gabriel has to tell her is dramatic. And he basically tells her, he says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And Mary is uh, very astute, quick to point out 
she says, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now let me tell you just a little bit more about what it meant to be betrothed in first century Israel. What it meant was that you were technically married. So what happened is um, you would either be courting someone or your parents would arrange the marriage and about age 12, 12 and a half, 13, somewhere in there, you would meet, if you're a woman, you would meet your future husband and you would sign a document, basically your, your marriage document, a contract. And then you would exchange the bride price. And at that point in that culture, you were officially married. So if your betrothal was broken up, you had to actually file for divorce. So that's significant, and that's very different than the way we do engagements here in America or in other parts of the world. The engagement, it's not on that same level. Now, after you were betrothed for a year, you would be married, there would be a celebration, and then you would um, continue into that marriage. But if you broke it off during that betrothal, even though you weren't, the marriage wasn't fulfilled, the marriage was still a marriage. So the initiation of the marriage began at the betrothal, and it was fulfilled on the wedding day. But you were still married during that whole year. So here we are. Let's imagine Mary, 12 and a half years old, a farm girl, betrothed. So she's technically married. This is why the Bible tells us that Joseph considered a divorce. And the angel Gabriel comes to her and says, you're a virgin, I understand that. But the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow you, and you will bear a child. And Mary miraculously responds, and she says yes. And I think I've always thought in my mind how, how faithful she was, how what a simple yes this was. She just said yes, and that was that. But as I've been thinking and, and studying, I've, I've realized it's a lot more complex. Um, in the first century world, must, much like our world, um, virgins didn't go about getting pregnant. It just, it just didn't happen. And so Mary, in six months, when she's starting to show and she goes to get water, she's pregnant. They know she's not married yet. They know she's, she's still betrothed, but she's showing. Or imagine that she's, she's working in her village with other women, and she's showing. So, so she has two options. She can either continue with this notion that she's a virgin, telling everyone she's a virgin, and obviously they're all whispering that she's crazy, or she can deny that she's a virgin and somehow just kind of ignore it. But either way, God has put her in a very sticky situation, especially in a culture much like ours where teenage pregnancy is looked down upon. It was even more so in this first century world. In fact, one of the reasons they married people so young was so that the suitor, the future husband, could guarantee that the woman was a virgin. That's how important virginity was in this culture. And yet, here is God enacting his will upon a woman who would be ostracized in her culture. And I think these, in, this, in this context, in this story of Gabriel coming announcing and Luke's recording of it and Mary's faithfulness, I think there are some lessons that some things that kind of enlighten our understanding of what this gospel is, what who Jesus is, and what his kingdom is about. And one of these things that I think is very obvious is that oftentimes the gospel calls us to humiliation. And I think that this is something that's hard for us to hear. We like a gospel that gives us everything we want, that makes us rich, that makes us powerful. But here, we're, we're seeing a gospel that humiliates a young woman. 
Now, this isn't always the case. We can compare this to Elizabeth, who we studied two months ago, but is actually just one chapter, uh, or in the same chapter, just a couple of verses beforehand. Elizabeth was a woman along in age, struggling with infertility, barren, like many women in the Old Testament, yearning for a child, and the Lord grants her a child. So imagine the celebration in that household when they find out that Elizabeth is indeed pregnant, or Hannah, or many, or Sarah, or many of the other women in the Bible. And the fact of the matter is that our God is a God who makes a way when there is no way. And our God is a God who makes life where there is no life. And so, yes, we worship a God who gives life in the midst of pain and suffering, and who provides healing like he did to Elizabeth. But that's not the story of Mary. Mary wasn't yearning for a child. We know that Mary goes on to have many sons, possibly even daughters as well. And so Mary wasn't struggling with infertility. Mary wasn't asking God day in and day out, Lord, give me a child. But Israel was asking for a Messiah. And the world was yearning for a Messiah as well, for Jesus to come. And so God, through Mary, brought Jesus into this world. So when Mary said yes, when Mary says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. This wasn't a simple yes. This was a yes that would have changed her whole pregnancy. But at the same time, we read over and over again that as Mary is watching Jesus grow up, as Mary is engaging with a boy Jesus growing into a young man, that she's treasuring things in her heart. There's a joy in her that is overwhelming. So even though the gospel will at times call us to humiliating circumstances, the gospel will always give us a joy that is above and beyond these things. And I can just imagine that Mary, this whole time during this nine months of pregnancy, as she's going through morning sickness, yes, Jesus probably gave her morning sickness, and as she's going through all these things, that she's probably rehashing in her mind, nothing is is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. And so we see that God uses the foolish to to shame the wise and to teach the wise. And so Mary, a woman from the country, is chosen for this. We contrast this with Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, from the earlier verses. And Zechariah was a priest. He was well-respected in his community. But God chose Mary. I think one of the reasons that God often chooses people on the margins of society or people who are outside uh, the norm for society is that they are well aware of their own brokenness. And I know many of us in this room have achieved the things we've set out to achieve. We're here we're in grad school. We have the job we've always wanted to have. We've worked hard, and we've been rewarded for it. And I think one of the things that is a downside to all that is that it prevents us from humbling ourselves before the Lord. And if there is one thing that can block our ability to be used by God, that's pride. And yet here is Mary, a woman who is clear in knowing that she's probably been told all her life she's a woman, she's living out in the country in Galilee. Galilee was spit upon, it was looked down upon by the rest of Israel, so she was very aware of where she was, social standing. And yet God called her. And again, God uses the faithful. For Mary said yes. And again, what a yes that was. And so Mary was, was in an essence, ruined for Jesus. And I think that I often uh, imagine that 
there are these grand stories of people overcoming addiction and people um, having this horrible life and it being turned around by the gospel. And those are powerful stories. Those are Elizabeth-like stories. Those are stories where people are broken and hurting and God moves in their life in a miraculous way and they come to know Jesus. And those are powerful stories. But there are other stories too. And a story much like myself. I grew up in the suburbs. I had a pretty good life. I went to a good school. I went to a good college. And when I first really experienced Jesus in, in a way that I hadn't before was when I was in a, a country that was overseas that was ridden with poverty. And that's when I was ruined for Jesus. And I feel like what happened was my eyes were opened to how God moves among those who are broken and hurting. And Mary, in the same way, was humbled and broken for Jesus in a much greater way than I could ever imagine. And so how many of us would be willing to sacrifice the things that Mary sacrificed, the social standing? Would Would we be willing to sacrifice wealth or maybe comfort? Maybe we'd be willing to sacrifice moving away from Boston and planting our roots in the city for long term, staying in the city to do the work of the gospel. And maybe God's not calling you to those things, and that's fine as well. But are our hearts and are our minds open to hearing the calling of God? And would we be willing to say yes, even though the consequences might be humbling? And this is, this is the, the gospel that Mary is teaching us. And I think that it's, it's, it's a story that resonates with me. Um, when I was in college, I was, uh, it was when I really, I think, fell in love with the city. And so when I was in college, I went to school in the suburbs, as I mentioned, and I would actually go into the city to be refreshed. When I was kind of depressed, when I was bored, when I was unable to really concentrate, the city for me was a place of refreshing. It was a place of joy. It was a place of peace. And it was a place where I would go to feel the Spirit of God and to be refreshed. And so that was one of the clear indications that I felt like God was calling me to live in the city, to give my life to the city, to minister in the city. And when I moved out here in 2007, I got a job um, working with youth workers in the Dudley Square area, which is in Roxbury. And I felt called to this, and I was doing this, and it was something I enjoyed and loved. And one day as I was um, walking to go get lunch with two friends of mine, uh, we were walking th- um, three wide on the sidewalk in Dudley Square. And as we were walking, there's a rather large man who, who walked past us. And he, and he purposely bumped into me. I said I was sorry, and I kept walking. And he obviously wanted more than an apology, so he came after me. And uh, standing next to me was my boss, and the other side was a 78-year-old Episcopal priest. So he wasn't of much help. <laughs> but my boss got in this man's way and said, hey, he's sorry, it was an accident, don't worry about it. And this guy shoved my boss into a chain-link fence right there. And he came after me, and I looked over at my elderly friend, and I looked at the guy, and he came at me, and he hit me in the head, and he knocked my head into a car. And the physical pain really wasn't that bad. It was more the psychological pain. Because here I was, I felt like I was called to this city. No, I was saving this city. Because I had come here, I could have gone to any school in the suburbs, but I chose to go to the city and I was here to save it. And how dare someone hurt me in the place where I'm serving. If they only knew what I was doing for the city, they wouldn't have done that. 
And I realized my pride, I realized my ambition, my selfish ambition, that I felt like I was here to do something for the city, that I was here to learn. And in that moment, there was a cost. One of it was a physical cost. Would I be willing to come back the next day and have this happen to me again? Would I be willing to raise a family here? Would I be willing to have kids in this context, send them to school, put them on the bus? Would I be willing to count that cost? On the other hand, too, was would I be willing to die to my pride, to realize that I didn't have all it was and that I wasn't the one who was teaching, but I was actually the one being taught because God had already spoken to those in the church in Boston, and I was coming here to learn to listen. And so here we are, this woman, Mary, and she has a child, Jesus. And imagine this child on the playground, and the kids whisper, oh, that's Jesus. You heard about, you heard about her, his father, right? They don't really know who his father is. He's a bastard child. They don't really know this Jesus. And so this was the context. Mary must have grown up hearing this as that Jesus was in, it was in uh, swaddling clothes as he was growing up. She must have heard this. This must have stayed with her this whole time. And so she was reminded day in and day out of the cost. And much of us, those of us who are called to the city, we ought to be reminded day in and day out of the cost of being called to the city, of the cost of being called to be like Jesus. And Mary said yes. And that yes was a yes to walking in God's call, to staying true to the calling upon her life, and in essence, bearing the child that would forgive all our sins. But her yes had consequences as well. And so maybe tonight, the Lord is is calling you and reminding you of your yeses. What have you said yes to? And what is the cost of this yes? So maybe we are in need of humility. Maybe we've forgotten our humble circumstances. Maybe we aren't like Mary. Maybe we haven't come from the boonies and we don't struggle with that. Maybe we've come from well-to-do backgrounds. And maybe this is a block to us hearing from God. So maybe the call tonight is humility. And maybe for us, we, don't, we haven't counted the cost recently for the gospel. So maybe Jesus is asking us, what is the cost to the gospel tonight? And maybe others of us know very well the cost of the gospel. And we know very well what it means to be humble. We've experienced that our whole lives. So maybe we need to be reminded of that joy, the joy that Mary had as Jesus was born, the joy that Mary had as Jesus grew up and she hid these things in her heart, the joy that Mary had on that night when the angel Gabriel said, nothing is impossible with God. So let us, let us meditate, let us reflect on Mary and the costly yes that she gave to the angel Gabriel.